0: LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com I'm your host Greg Moffat and today we present part two of our interview with Courtney Brown of the Farsight Institute in which we conclude our discussion about his recent DVD release Atlantis the True Story. If you missed part one you can find it at legalizefreedom.com that's legalize-freedom.com. The interview resumes as we discuss the controversial Google Earth images of the seabed on which the Farsight Institute's Atlantis project was based these google earth images that we're talking about the undersea one the main one we're discussing that did generate some controversy at the time and it showed up in a lot of the mainstream press um predictably uh-huh. under under headlines of uh, has Atlantis has been discovered but yeah google do have a record of blurring or even blocking some parts of the google earth view. now often this is for sort of yeah understandable, predictable reason military installations, things like that. But that has kind of been on the increase. It's definitely been on the increase. There's a lot
1: of things that have been discovered with Google Earth data that have been uh, censored out, uh, apparently. So they smudge it out uh, and you have to understand that the Google Earth image, imagery stuff, they all come from U.S. governmental sources. And so, Google is dealing with the public dissemination of governmental data. And there's there's some things that the governments obviously don't want people to see, which is, for example, super secret spy stuff. I mean, super secret military bases and things like that. Those are sort of obvious. But there's a lot of other stuff that the governments don't want people to see, which would raise a whole lot of questions. And those deal with things like that. Uh, you know, there's a... Mars option for Google Earth and Greg I don't know if you're on the internet right now but if on our website farsight.org about, let me see, there's about seven links down on the lab bar you'll see a base on Mars and that was another project we did using imagery that came out of NASA, Malin Space Science Systems uh, JPL imagery that clearly shows a spray coming out of a horizontally positioned nozzle, like a waste ejection spray, high pressure spray coming out of a nozzle that's connected to a pipeline that's connected to a dome. Actually, there's a series of domes and a very large nearby dome and so on. Anyway, that was a very unusual anomaly on that was a very high resolution picture. I mean, really, really high resolution picture. And if you go to our website, and go to the base on Mars link on the nav bar, and you can see the imagery yourself, and it's absolutely unambiguous. There's even a shadow underneath the spray; it's very clear. So we did a project on that and unraveled that in fact it was a large mili- it was a large base, a scientific base that's occupied currently, and that something's going on there. And on that same web page that we have for the Mars Project, if you look, scroll a little bit farther down, you can see the Google Earth Mars picture of that exact spot. And it's been censored out. They literally have a rectangular block sensor right on top of it. They're not even trying to hide it, that they're censoring it. So, I mean, it's a very clear censoring block. And you can't say, oh, well, it could have been an imagery glitch. You can't say that because we have the original pictures and that are also right on the page. <laughs> I mean, you're looking clearly at the picture itself. The trouble is that the actual original image, you have to dig out of a Malin Space Science Systems NASA JPL website. You can get it. We have the links to it, but you have to dig it out. And you don't get billions of people doing that. But the Google Earth stuff, billions of people do do. They go to that. So the governments are more concerned about what's on Google Earth rather than sort of an obscure... NASA, Malin, J, J, Malin, Space Science Systems, JPL, uh, Link. So Google Earth has a long history, uh, in my opinion, of that type of thing. But, you know, you have to give them slack. I mean, don't be upset with them. They, they're they dealing with governmental data. The government could shut down Google in a second if they wanted. I mean, they could deprive them of the data. I mean, Google Earth is heavily dependent upon the um government being friendly to it. If it was unfriendly to it, their entire business model would would evaporate within 24 hours. So, you know, that's it's not that there are evil people at Google, but there are people that really are between a rock and a hard place when it comes to certain sensitive projects, certain sensitive, you know, locations.
0: It might sound like something that only a a Bond villain could afford to be engaged in, but can private companies map this? Uh, information on the the seafloor.
1: Absolutely, but you have to have the money to do that, and that's always a threshold. So it's usually governments that have the money to pay for ships to do the sonar imaging. But at this point they know exactly where the stuff is at the bottom of the ocean. Now this is technological stuff, so there have been other civilizations who sank through means that were not caused by their own technological secrecy cloak science experiments, but just calamities on earth. We, you know, but rarely does a civilization rise to the point of having high levels of technology like they had 70,000 years ago or like we have now. So really what, what we have is at that particular location off the coast of Morocco and Portugal, thousand miles west, three miles down, you have a society that has technology. And some of the technology apparently is still sealed and down below. Mind you, they had about five days. The remote viewing evidence is clear on that. We know that because they, when, they, when they realized what was happening, they realized there was going to be a blowout on the crust of the earth. And they knew that it would affect the antipode. So that their, their science knew that. And they announced in that area that's a thousand miles west of Morocco and Portugal, what was going to happen. And they had about five days to try to organize what you might consider rescue efforts or escape efforts. And what they did is they took whatever boats they had and they put mostly fecund women, women capable of childbearing or pregnant women, on the boats. Old women did not get there and men did not get there. The only men that were allowed on the boats were were, were those needed to sail the boats. Otherwise, it was women capable of childbearing that they were putting on the boats. They, they realized it was a potential extinction level event. So they had a few days and they were announcing this, what they had done and what had happened on loudspeakers to literally hundreds of thousands of people that were gathering on the surface saying, oh, my God, you're kidding. This is a joke, right? I mean, the, the, the story is so clear on the DVD when you when you take all the remote viewing imagery, such high quality imagery great drawings, great descriptions, and you put it all together chronologically, you paint a picture, it's absolutely unambiguous. All the dots, <clears throat> not the select dots, but all the dots come together and you clearly see unambiguously with physical evidence, clear remote viewing data, clear Google Earth data, what happened, who did it, who they were, when it happened, and you know how we came about. Ultimately, Greg, if you don't mind me being so bold here, is our destiny, our future as a species has to be to get off this planet. This is a really great planet for a a botanical and zoological garden. It's also a nice place to have a vacation on, but we shouldn't be here. If we stay here forever, we will bite the dust just like our ancestors bite the dust. Eventually, just by the luck of the draw, just by the throw of the dice, Human civilization will have a chance to advance to the point where it can move off the planet. I would think if we had another thousand years, even maybe a few hundred years, we'd probably be able to do that. And that's what we must do. This is not a place for a long-term civilization. It's a place for a good camping trip. It's a great place for a botanical and zoological refuge for wildlife. It's not a place for us to be hanging around. And we must move off the planet, uh, certainly within a thousand years. Now, this assumes that we don't get crushed before then. I mean, it happened, Atlantis, that that civilization might have actually survived uh, had they not destroyed themselves, because they might have had the capability technologically of getting off the planet in the near future for them, but they killed themselves. (laughs) And so Hopefully, in this time around, we might be a little different. I'm a scientist, so I'm all in favor of science. I'm not in favor of secrecy cloak scientists, because even the scientists died back in the Atlantis days. I mean, the scientists, the governmental people, we happen to have really good descriptions with great drawings of military people leading a civilian leader like a president, plus his advisors, to what they thought was a safe bunker when all this stuff was happening. They all died. Nobody escaped. So... Secrecy cloak science ends badly for everybody, including the people doing it. So, you know, and we should learn from our baby mistakes now, like Fukushima Daiichi. Secrecy cloak science and the building of things and not telling people what really is the situation with those things. And we have gotten to the point now where what we do technologically can affect the entire planet. And at that point, doing it secretly will just kill you.
0: Well, just with regarding the nature of this planet and compatibility or otherwise of life on it, some of the listeners may be familiar with the theory of uh, panspermia the idea that life on this planet may well be purposeful and have a degree of design to it, but that it, it came here perhaps somewhat randomly. Panspermia basically suggests that um, meteors and um, mm. other similar sort of heavenly bodies carry the seeds of life and they end up randomly on planets all over the place and sometimes it takes sometimes it doesn't
1: yeah that's one theory i happen to go along with a different theory which is that this entire planet is genetically engineered and that there are species that over the billions of years actually we should be talking in terms of hundreds of millions of years but you know perhaps as late as a billion years or so have been that extraterrestrial species have been coming by and experimenting throwing things in and just walking away and letting things go for a long while, see how it turns out. I think we're eventually going to see that we're a genetically engineered species. The whole idea that is taught in mainstream science and all the universities today, that we popped out of an ape in anatomically correct form 200,000 years ago, is just, I don't even know where to begin. It's such, it's such a crazy idea. It's just amazing that it's taught in universities at all. Yet, you cannot say anything at any university on campus that, that says that's a stupid idea. You can't pop a human out of an ape in 200,000 years. It takes hundreds of millions of years for something like that to occur. It just can't happen in short term. The evidence, as is evidenced by Michael Cremo's book, for example, which is a fat and well-documented book, humans have been around contemporaneously with apes for hundreds of millions of years. So it's not a situation where where we're sort of a brand new species in that our civilization... If you think about it, we we have scientists saying that anatomically correct humans are only a few hundred thousand years old, like a couple hundred thousand years old, and our society, our civilization, is only 3,000 years old. Before that, we were just hunter-gatherers. That's like such a Disneyland story. I don't know where to begin. It, it, nothing like that happens that quickly. It just doesn't happen, and it completely goes against archaeological evidence that is suppressed but nonetheless is right in your face saying, hey, that just is not true. This Atlantis anomaly off the coast of Morocco and Portugal is one example. I mean, they can laugh at it and sort of poo-poo it and say it's ship lines and say it's been fixed all they want, but they they can't eliminate it. It's still there. And if somebody has enough money, they could take another boat that's not under contract from the US Navy with their own sonar machines and literally just cruise over the exact same spot and they'll see the elevation changes that are real right underneath that spot and in fact if it wasn't three miles deep um, we could go down there and sort of poke around down there you know there's very few submarines that can do that they do have submarines that can do it James Cameron for example has a submarine that went down to the bottom of the Marianas trench And I, I believe the submarines in storage and he's got a lot of money, but there are people with a lot of money, billions in fact, who throw it at educational efforts and other things like that. George Lucas, for example, just sold his whole kit and caboodle, the whole Lucasfilm stuff, to Disney. So Disney, starting off with the brand new Star Wars stuff and everything like that. And he sold it for $4, million, $4 billion, almost all of which he gave away immediately to educational purposes. Um, you know, just because somebody has money doesn't mean that they're spending their money in a way that would be exceptionally creative, that would really help the planet uh, in, in the in the ways we're talking about now. I mean, he could easily have afforded with that money to do correct sonar readings. The only issue is that the government might not have let him do it. You can have the money, but that doesn't mean you're going to be allowed to do it. There's a lot of things rich people could do, but don't do because they don't—they're not that—they're not thinking along those lines. But there's also a lot of things that people could do that they wouldn't be allowed to do, even if they wanted to do it. But you know, for example, Ted Turner—he's here in my—he's right here in Atlanta with me. Um, he gave a billion dollars to the United Nations. Well, I'm sure it was all spent on good things, but. The United Nations, if they're bankrupt financially, it's because they have their own house that's not in order. It wasn't a lack of money that caused their house to be out of order. It's a lack of their own internal ability to manage themselves. It's it's a reflection of the state of the planet. And so throwing a billion dollars at them, in my opinion, was not a very productive thing to do, even though I'm sure the money was spelt for good stuff. And I'm sure Ted Turner wanted to really make a huge dent in a positive direction on the planet. But once his billion dollars is spent, you're still back at a messed up planet because people are disorganized and countries are disorganized. You have to let people be themselves. Throwing money at them is not going to really save them. But imagine having that billion dollars spent on things like this. But anyway... So we have efforts done here at the Farsight Institute, which we have a couple thousand do- a couple thousand dollars in the bank, almost nothing, where we, we do this all on volunteer efforts. And, you know, I don't know any organization that has brought more hugely, potently interesting and valuable information to the public's eye than us for basically zero money. So, you know, imagine what would happen if we had money... To actually do these things for real, rather than our part, rather than in our part time, we all have day jobs, and we do this stuff in money that we steal from our kitchen budget. So imagine if we had real money associated with this, like a million dollars or a billion dollars, uh, even one million dollars, it would it would change the face of everything. And there's a good reason to believe that we would be allowed to bring this to fulfillment, to really raised to planet up in a great way because even the intelligence community is very split with respect to us we have helped them a lot the reason the Farsight institute still exists is we have actually they're actually very interested in us in fact the military guys the military intelligence guys are on our board of directors for god's sake i mean it's, it's not like it's not like we're sort of secret and they ignore us we're very public and they actually look at the stuff we do and I have to confess, I don't want to. I don't want to say like we're perfect. There are projects that we avoid because we know that the military and the governments don't want us to do certain things. So there are projects that we literally stay away from because they, we know that you know, they have their limits of what they're willing to tolerate us to do. They know that remote viewing is real. They know that they want to sort of suppress it, but they know they're also not so big that we're we're, we're not. We're not causing any serious ripples in sort of the control issues that are being dealt with, but on the other hand, there's a huge number of the people, even in the intelligence community, that think that the information really has to get out there. So they're split there, and so um, a we have helped them. B we you know we they watch what we do. They're actually very interested in what we do, but I don't want to leave the impression that we have a sort of a Sort of a messianical type of view of trying to do everything our own way, and that we ignore the government. There are things that we don't do purposefully because we we know the government doesn't want us to do them. So I, I you know don't consider us perfect in that regard. We we all make compromises, but nonetheless the stuff that we do do is like light years more than anything that anybody else does and with a, with a few more resources, we could do a lot more and there's good evidence to indicate that we would be allowed to do it if we had the resources. The government's not going to The government is not going to give us the money to do it, but if we did have the money to do it to expand, we would be allowed to in my opinion
0: Just a quick aside um, with regard to um, potential off world interference and in life on earth. Uh, the movie itself turned out to be a bit of a monumental disappointment, but I thought the the opening sequence of uh, Prometheus was, was most uh-huh. interesting. I don't know if you saw that movie. Yeah, I did. I saw it a couple of times. Oh, well done. I, I barely got through it the first time, but uh, um, I thought it was a little bit incoherent, but I thought it had the potential to be a really great film. Well, that's the trouble with
1: having um, high-def television these days. You're late at night and you're tired and you really search the channels And sometimes you end up watching a show that you've already seen and you don't really want to see it, but there's nothing else on And so that's how Prometheus got into me twice. But but the original uh, images and the the original part of the story, the beginning of that story, you're correct. It was very interesting. The whole idea of seeding the planet. You're you're talking about the, the image in the beginning where the alien ate something on Earth and it destroyed his body. So that he just basically crumbled and went into the water. And that was the elements of life that eventually, you know, gave birth to us. Yeah, the DNA. You're talking about that. Yeah, the DNA. Yeah,
0: that's right. But uh, what you were describing a little while ago about the efforts of the Atlantean civilization, should we just call them as that's, you know, the basic frame of reference? Yeah, for for lack of a better word. Yes, and, th- and their efforts to kind of um, sort of get into what they could into boats and get away. I mean, that's just instantly reminiscent of like Noah's Ark, isn't it really? And of course, Atlantis has been one of the most persistent legends over the millennia. And, but it we, is. But we also it have is. these deluge and flood myths from all over the world and all different cultures. And coupled with emerging evidence day on day, week on week now for advanced ancient civilization or civilizations, so it's yeah. just it's just interesting that there's so much crossover there.
1: Yeah, there is. The the thing that we're talking about with the escape, the attempt, the attempt to escape, because when the land sunk, there was an inundation of water that flooded in. That doesn't look at all like the Noah's Ark concept, because it looks like a really rapidly, like you're grabbing, you only have like five days notice, and you're grabbing boats that already exist, And you're packing women, not animals and stuff like that. You're packing mostly women and a few men on the boats. So you're talking about the same concept of saving people on the boats, saving people with boats because of water. But with the Noah's Ark idea, you have the idea of saving animal life as well as some human life with the idea that there'll be a flooding that occurs. And uh, it's, it's often associated with rain and heavy inundation of, 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 of water, but not 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 like tidal wave type water, You're, but like the, the seas rising up. And that matches more of the type of stuff that Robert Schock talks about in his book, Forgotten Civilization, by a, sort of a mechanism that seems to be more solar oriented, in the sense that the the sun gets out of whack every once in a while, and it starts Belting a lot of energy towards us and we apparently have What Robert Schock calls? Uh, like plasma storms that occur now it, it doesn't happen like in recent memory these plasma storms But if you're talking in time spans of like 10 or 20,000 years they happen and these plasma storms rain huge amounts of energy down on the earth and they would melt ice and so, what you're going to get is a situation in which these the, the seas would the ice would melt and the seas would rise. And if if there was an extraterrestrial species that knew this was coming, say in a year, based on information they were getting from reading the sun, then they could warn someone like Noah and perhaps give resources to do that to start building this boat. So this idea of an ark is sort of interesting. That may be sort of a mythology type of an issue, it maybe a, a legend, but there's, there's probably some truth to it, but what is, where is the borderline between the story and the truth? Was it like a really a wood boat? And did it have only a couple people on it, but mostly animals? Or did it literally go in the water for like a, just a few months? I mean, sort of all those details we don't really know. But there probably is something correct about that legend, about some type of floating vehicle being used to save animal and humans and, and so that they could sort of restart after a flooding event occurred. And the flooding event may have had to do with the stuff that Robert Schock talks about, which is one of these plasma storms. But this seems to be a natural event. The Atlantis stuff was not a natural event they blew a hole in the side of the planet. They punctured the balloon and they caused a dent in the antipode, the opposite spot, which is exactly the spot where we get the Atlantis anomaly, so-called Atlantis anomaly, off the coast of Morocco and Portugal.
0: The whole idea of the arc just to talk about movies again. Um, I, yeah. just, I just love to talk about this, these ideas when they come up in popular culture. Uh, yeah. I, th- I think they also they do so for a reason, but that reminds us a bit of the re- recent disaster movie, 2012, where humanity basically had time to prepare for something that was coming. That was the Sony movie. That's right. And to a lesser extent, the other movie, Day After Tomorrow, which is kind of a climate, yes. climate change uh, one. Again, people having some time to prepare. But it strikes me that what you were outlining with the Atlantis thing sounded, yes, there would have been a high degree of panic, but there was obviously some kind of focus, some kind of organization. And psychology and human emotion that would play a huge part in any potential future disaster scenario like this. And yeah. I, don't, I don't know if you've seen another film, which I'd thoroughly recommend if you haven't seen it, called Melancholia. Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, just simply the idea that people having time to prepare, but they just go into like a catatonic state because it's too overwhelming for them. So I think there be, would be a range of human reactions, but well, I, I don't, you know, it wouldn't be pretty.
1: No, it would be pretty. And in the Atlantis thing, we really, I really clearly spell out why we know they only had a few days. They only had like five days notice and maybe that was more than they had. It was a very quick thing, but they had enough time to use loudspeakers, no less. I'm sure they were using radio and TV, but they also had loudspeakers where they were announcing to literally hundreds of thousands of people amassing on the surface uh, what was going to happen. They were trying to control the crowds as best they could, but the crowds were getting out of control. And it was like, what's the use? I mean, what are you trying to control the crowds for? Even the military people trying to control the crowds were going to die. I mean, it was quite clear, but they did have enough time to... See their experiment go belly up. We actually have very clear descriptions and very clear pictures, really great drawings, of people that were monitoring the experiment of drilling through the Earth crust, realizing what went wrong. They're staring at their computer monitors in these control in these control uh, control rooms, and some of them started to pray for the first time. They didn't know whether to laugh or to cry. They were in total total shock and seeing what was going to happen and the implications of what was going to happen. I mean, you basically saw that the hole that they were drilling was going to blow out. It wasn't something that they were going to be able to control. I mean, there's a lot of pressure. An 8,000 mile diameter ball of liquid rock, that's a lot of pressure. And suddenly, you have a hole in the balloon where all that pressure can escape And it's not a small hole. It was they they had these big boring drills, drill bits that were drilling right down, and well, all the machinery just got blown out. They weren't able to control the lava at all. They weren't able once they got close to the close to the other end of the crust. It was like boom, everything just blew out. And so they had enough time to realize what was going on, to take their civilian, we might call them a president civilian leader, plus advisors, and lead them to what they thought might have been secure bunkers, which of course was ludicrous. They all died. And they had enough time to announce on loudspeakers. So I'm assuming, based on what the imagery is there, that it was like five days. It might have been shorter. It might have been a couple days. But what we saw looks like it took, took place over a number of days. It wasn't like an afternoon. It wasn't like one afternoon and it was gone. It looks like they had some time to sort of because the people had to go outside. They had to they had to, they had to listen. They had to sort of figure out a plan of getting to the boats. They may not have had a total of five days. It might have been shorter, but it wasn't like it wasn't like fifteen minutes or half hour. <laughs> there was enough time to for people to gather to listen for announcements to be made. Secrecy cloak science doesn't work well. You know if you think about it, we use secrecy cloak stuff for everything. That's how we govern our societies. We we have s- secrets and we fiercely maintain these secrets. Look at all the efforts that the, the US government for example is making to control s- things like the WikiLeaks sync and the, uh, the WikiLeaks thing and the Snowden thing. I mean, even relatively minor secrets, and I'm saying minor because they're relatively minor, to the, to the sort of the biggies, the, the government's going to apoplexy when these things come out. And so if you look at sort of low-level secrecy, the building of nuclear power plants, there's thousands of nuclear power plants that are horrifically unsafe, built all over the place, and they're all built... With technology and safeguards that are totally inadequate and totally done in secret, meaning the public is told, "Don't worry, we know how to do this. Leave it us up. Leave it up to us. We're the engineers. We're the scientists. We're know what we're doing. You're nothing but dumb idiots." So they they build these things and they do really stupid things because it's all secrecy cloaked. Like put spent fuel rods, not like a couple, but hundreds of tons of spent fuel rods in each, for each reactor, in swimming pools, literally, literally swimming pools. And these swimming pools have to have a constant flow of cooled water in order to prevent a complete meltdown for these spent reactor rods that have plutonium in them. And when you get things like the Fukushima Daiichi plant, you realize how ridiculous these things really are. Because in the Fukushima Daiichi plant, for example, just for example with with Reactor 4, they put the swimming pool containing the spent rods in the top floor of a building, of a multi-story building. They, they put it up. They didn't put it on the ground level. They put it up. And the building is now rated an earthquake rating of zero, which means a kid could kick it down. During the um, tsunami... It sunk 37 feet, and it, since then it sunk another 30 feet. And now the concern is that it's listing, it's beginning to tilt. The concern is that it will tilt and then it will fall over. And they can't get the fuel rods out of it to this day. So the current crisis going on in Fukushima is that there's 600 tons of water that's being pumped. And increasingly there's an increasing amount put in the tanks just to cool the stuff. They're not recycling the water. They're just pumping water in. It gets radioactive. And then they store it. And they got like 600 tons of it so far. And the water is leaking into the Pacific Ocean. And then the, 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 the big thing that's not being talked much about is the building, housing the fuel rods. Well, you should not think that the Fukushima Daiichi building plan is unique. They have crazy building plans for these things all over the planet. And... If we were to have, for example, one minor Carrington event, coronal mass ejection, for example, that knocked out the power even for a week on this planet, those things would go belly up. The, the circulating systems in those reactors would stop, and these spent fuel rods in the pools would be open, exposed to air, melt, go through the go through the um, buildings and go into the ground, into the water tables. So, you know, you're, you're talking a disaster that's inevitable. So, you know, this is what secrecy cloak stuff does. I am a scientist. I love science. I'm just not in favor of secrecy cloak science. The idea of sort of diminishing the intellectual value of the public by saying they're idiots and they don't understand this stuff. Let us do it by ourselves. That is isn't in itself an idiotic approach. Remember when the Atlantean civilization died, the very scientists that were doing this stuff, they also died. It's not a good way to proceed.
0: No, it's what a tangled web we weave when we practice to deceive. I can't remember what that's from, but. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah. And yeah.
0: Uh, as, as Merlin said in Excalibur, uh, when a man lies, he murders some part of the world. That's always stuck in my head as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, whether the threat is off planet or we're creating it here ourselves, I mean, to address the former. And um, briefly, I mean, as Robert Schock has pointed out in his book and others have as well, I mean, we're actually quite overdue for some kind of major solar impact.
1: We're overdue. We're overdue. So it's, and it's going to happen. And, and I'm not into the business of predicting when it will happen, because if you know, I we've done a lot of work on the issue of prediction, including our multiple universe project. And the basic idea is that. It is impossible to make a deterministic prediction of the future because there is no single future. Uh, This this goes into a whole other area that we don't have time to go into today. But the, the, the thumbnail of it is that for every moment of the now, there's a branching of futures. And all of those other futures are as equally real as the one we have today. As the one you're experiencing and I'm experiencing And so there is no single future for any moment of the now. It doesn't exist. There's only a multiplicity of futures, perhaps an infinite variety. And so it is impossible to predict, make a deterministic prediction of a single future because a single future does not exist. There's only a multiplicity. So I'm not into the business of saying when a coronal mass ejection will occur, when we will get a so-called Carrington event. I remind you the 1859 Carrington event was small. That was not a big one. They, But even that small one would have brought us back to the Stone Age. <laughs> and that was a small one. The ones Robert Schock talks about which occur every with quite regularity every few thousand years. Those are like way bigger. I'm way, way bigger. But even the small one would have knocked out all of our technology. You're talking a complete eradication of the electric grid, all satellite infrastructure, everything. You're talking about no, no, no gas in the cars because you need electric pumps in the gas stations to get the gas into the car, no refrigeration at grocery stores, no delivery of groceries. You're talking a complete breakdown of civilization as we know it. So I don't have to use remote viewing to tell you that that's coming. I just have to, you know, the best way to predict that type of thing is to look at the past And clearly that's coming, that's not, you don't have to be a a rocket scientist to see that that is coming. When it is coming is another question. I don't know when it's coming, but the fact that those things occur is not in dispute. So anyway, so yeah, yeah, these, by the way, we are getting to the point now where we are beginning to understand how to make approximate predictions. So we had we did, for example, a project called the so-called Climate Project, which we'll uh, perhaps talk about on your show at a future time, where we were very successful at describing the basic major elements of things that will happen in the future, even though we get the details wrong. When remote viewing the past or present targets, concurrent targets, you get the details correct. But when you're doing the front, the 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 you know forward targets, the future targets, you only get the basic elements correct, all the details are wrong, but the basic elements are huge. You get to know when major big things will happen and then you can actually act on that information to change the details by a lot. So anyway, but we'll talk about that at, at, an, at another show, but we're, we're getting to the point now of making some progress in the issue of prediction. Even though we can't predict details, we can predict some major elements.
0: Whatever actually lies In our past um, it seems clear that evidence for advanced ancient civilization or civilizations in prehistory if that was widely disseminated it would really be a game-changer and perhaps that's why there's such hysteria and suppression around it from mainstream academia because if history is rewritten then the truth of who we are and you know how we came to be here and and maybe what our future direction is that that all can be up for um, Change then can't it? And it could, I mean, it could it could radically alter the face of life on Earth?
1: Um, absolutely. In fact, there's two al- there's two elements to it. The first is that governmental authorities, sort of the so-called powers that be, industrial authorities, things, they have an interest in not having that information out because it direct, it, it would disrupt their their agenda of what they want to do. Because people would say, oh, this is the way it is, and we want different. We want things to run differently. And so it would disturb that level. But on the other hand, the masses, the intellectual elite in the universities, you can't claim that all those tens of thousands of academics are being controlled by the military and by the governments. You can't do that. There is an actual psychological resistance to intellectual change on the part of humans. And so once people are sort of born into a certain mindset, thinking about ideas in a certain way, they really have their own level of inertia. That's why Max Planck said more than 100 years ago, major change in science doesn't occur because someone comes up with a new idea and people say, hey, that's great. Let's, Let's think that now. It actually happens because you get generational replacement. It's very difficult to get people to wrap their heads around certain ideas that are Really very very different than the ideas that they grew up thinking and the reaction among people is typically not just to say Oh, I don't agree with that. The reaction among people especially mainstream scientists who have interest to defend is to violently react against it so that they really try to suppress the information uh, hurt people's careers uh, prevent hiring in university settings you know, deny tenure for some people if they can early enough. Uh, this, this is, and this is not because the government is pulling strings. This is just the nature of people. So it's got that, that twofold thing. But there was one more thing I'd like to mention to you, just to sort of emphasize the valid nature of your point. This whole call, this whole Atlantis thing, that was seventy thousand years ago. That happened before the birth of any of our religions you get the idea? I mean if Christianity is a 2,000 year old thing and Islam is even earlier than that and Buddhism is relatively recent as well and Hinduism it goes on and on. So this 70,000 year old civilization that has its mark on our planet that was way before any of our religions like way before any of our religions. So what does that say to people? Our scientists and our government and military people, are also religious people. They have not just intellectual beliefs, but they have spiritual beliefs. And so when you're talking about a civilization that was high-tech on our planet 70,000 years ago, you're talking about not just changing the way people think about our history, but you're talking about throwing away a lot of religious beliefs. You're not talking about mildly revising them. You're talking about essentially discarding a lot of religious beliefs and that's really really hard for people to think about now this does not mean that there isn't a valid and real spiritual view it's just that the details are not not what we probably want to think about
0: well we would uh, ignore warnings from history I think at our peril but whatever happened in the past we don't we can see what's happening right in front of us now and I think the combined problems with the environment, with what's happening at Fukushima, and then, of course, the resurgent threat of war yet again, always the potential of World War three can be uh, triggered if indeed it hasn't already begun in slow motion. We can see right now that whatever the problems of living on this ball of boiling rock, that we don't have to, we, we can choose either way, but we do not have to sleepwalk into hell on earth. It doesn't have to be like that.
1: These major conflicts, these major wars happen with quite regularity, and it's important to realize that so-called powers that be really rely on them to happen, and that you never really get the full story. You never really get the full story. They really want these wars to occur for their own reasons, and this is a topic that really is one of those areas that I try to stay away from, because I know the I know the military people don't want me to go into this in detail, but there's some historical stuff that's really easy that I don't think goes too far in any direction that's disturbing. But, for example, if you go to the Vietnam War, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution that that uh, initiated the full-scale escalation of U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War was based on an incident that didn't occur which was a boat attack by a North Vietnamese military boat on a destroyer, a U.S. destroyer. There were actually two reported incidences of a, the first one was a small boat that uh, rode by, maybe gave some small arms fire towards a destroyer. Nothing, nothing was damaged. And the second one was, the second instance was just totally didn't happen. And it's not in dispute, the, so there were reportedly two instances. The first one was minor, um, nothing to start a war over, and the second one, and uh, no damage, and the second one was completely fictitious. Uh, you know, this, the second instance didn't occur. President Johnson, then in an outrage, went to Congress and said, demanded the ability to protect our ships from foreign aggression. based on the Gulf of Tonkin incidents that didn't even happen. And the Congress, in a big puff of smoke, passed the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, and that, of course, began the huge escalation of the Vietnam War. None of this that I'm saying is in dispute. It's not at all in dispute by any historical record. So the only thing that we don't know, we could find out, but we don't know currently, is whether Johnson knew he was lying to Congress when he was saying that we were attacked and we need the ability to defend ourselves, or if he was duped by his advisors. One of the, one of the things by the you know, military and industrial people that definitely wanted, especially the industrial people, definitely wanted that war. So there were people that wanted the war. That is absolutely clear. The Gulf of Tonkin Resolution was based on a non-existent event. That is clear, not in, exp- not in dispute. So that is the basic model going forward. So whenever you see something happening, without me going into a lot of details, um, that's the model you should be looking for. Meaning every few years, every 10 years or so, you will get something that makes it look like, in an emotional state, we must get involved in a military way. And, you know, the military-industrial complex really depends on this type of phenomena to occur. So I use the Gulf of Tonkin thing as one where I don't have to, it's historical, it's a little bit into our past, but it's sufficiently close that you can sort of relate it to the current time period. And that's the basic true model of how our societies are sort of shocked into going from one one conflict to the next. I think eventually people are going to stop being willing to fight these wars. I think the long-term future of this is coming to an end. What we haven't really understood is what is the ultra, ultimate underlying motivation behind why this occurs. I think it's incorrect to think that people are that people in hidden places are simply evil and wanting to make a lot of money off the war machine, I think that's not that's not correct. I think there's some other thing going on that's much bigger behind the scenes that we don't understand, something that sort of keeps our civilization in a state of disarray so that we can't stay settled long enough to think our way out of the bigger problems that we're facing. But that's another project for another day.
0: It is. Well, we'll find out in just a few days from now, when Congress get their fingers out of their butts what's going to happen in Syria, but let's hope it's not the beginning of us going the way of Atlantis.
1: No, the Atlantis thing was something completely different. That was something where they did a single project that destroyed the whole planet. Now, that, that was a biggie. So, whatever we do in Syria, it looks like it would be a a wartime sort of escalation involved in a lot of money exchanging hands, a lot of fighting going on, um, people making money just the way they did in Iraq, but also the people getting confused, the public becoming confused about what actually did happen, what didn't happen, and um, that level of confusion keeps people distracted. Did you ever see a magician? Of course you have, but if you look like Darren Brown, I mean you're in Britain, he's like one of the great magicians, one of the great things about him is the ability to distract. Mm-hmm. So, when, if you want to do something, you make sure people's attention is not on the thing that you want to do, and the ability to distract is fundamental to the way magicians work. Well, that's also fundamental to the way governance, human governance works. One of the reasons that the remote viewing agenda is a good one to support is it supports the idea of of governing in the absence of secrecy which is something really new for our species to think about we we do everything in secret uh, whether it's meetings that the president has with congress or whether it's their meetings of the federal reserve board deciding on interest rates or you know military people doing stuff industrial people doing stuff secrets are what we do and so we're thinking about literally charting a new course for our society. Governance without secrecy. It's, it's It may seem impossible now, but in reality, that's that's where we must head.
0: Well, that's what we have a chance to find out. Well, today, Courtney, we've mostly been talking about your recently released DVD, Atlantis, The True Story. There's a lot of documentation on that, and as you mentioned, a 15-minute segment available on your website, so perhaps you'd just like to share that sort of information with folks before we call it a day.
1: Remember we're a, a nonprofit, so so all the remote viewing data uh, that we do for all of our projects going back plus presentations about it are all for free on our website. And it's www.farsight.org, F-A-R-S-I-G-H-D, like seeingfar.org, because we're a nonprofit. The DVD, The Atlantis, The True Story, is the best audio-visual thing that we've ever put together for any one of our projects. And it's really necessary because it's not something that you can do with a three-minute YouTube attention span. You have to sit down and watch the whole DVD to actually understand the full grasp of how real all of this is, have it all tied together. So anyway, but the full information about the DVD, including the first 15 minutes of it, which gives all the background stuff... Um, is all available for free on our website and um, i hope people if you do get to if hope if your listeners actually do watch the entire tvd that you have uh, your friends and family over as well so that the information gets out and they can watch it as well
0: excellent well courtney thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizedFreedom.com.
1: it's been my great pleasure thank you so much greg
0: well folks that's it for another week as ever thank you so much for listening if you enjoy the show, please check out the website, that's legalizefreedom.com, legalize-freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics, including world affairs, politics and economics, science and technology, religion and spirituality, conspiracy and alternative history. You can also browse and buy a range of books and DVDs from our guests, and if you're feeling generous, make a donation to help keep the site up and running. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.